Hey No Limits, it's Rebecca, and I want to thank you for being with us for the last and final podcast of 2019. And just thank you generally, because you guys have been incredible for this last year, for these last handful of years as we've been running along this journey. You've shared, you've talked about, you've emailed us your comments, your feedback, and it really means the world to me and to the team, to Taylor, to Lane, to Brittany, to get such great response from all of you and just the fact that you take the time to let us know. So I want to let you know that in the new year, we're going to be going on a little hiatus because we're giving some thought to this show. We're going to be revamping things. And as always, if you have ideas or suggestions please reach out, let me know, let the team know what you're thinking. You can always email us at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always reach me on social media at Rebecca Jarvis. I want this show to be phenomenal. And I think we're having some really important and powerful conversations here. And my goal in the new year is to keep improving on that and keep delivering both what you are looking for and also to have these nourishing conversations that me and the entire team enjoy so much. Thanks also to all of our guests who've taken their time and their energy and shared what I think are some really deep um, and important teachings with all of us and their stories. And they've been vulnerable and they've been real. And it's been awesome, at least from where I'm sitting. So thanks to all of you. Thanks to you, the listeners. Thanks to all the people who have been our great guests. And thanks to this incredible team that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Brittany Martinez, and Lane Wynn. The core. You guys get it done every week. Okay, that's enough of me on my soapbox. Here's this week's episode, the final one of 2019. I think of a brand like a baby. Every day, every week, every month, they are developing new characteristics and their personality is evolving. And I think that it's critically important for all brands to always evolve. And so it's not just about having the right color palette or the logo or the packaging. It is, you know, what is that mission? What is that conversation that you're having with that customer? And how does that evolve and change over time? Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We appreciate your loyalty. And if you're new, welcome. Each week, we work here to demystify success. I know it's a weird word, doesn't mean everything to everyone, but the idea is happiness in the work that you do in your life. And we go about finding that by speaking to the world's most influential women across all different industries. And the conversations go beyond the resume. From decision-making to trade-offs to those pivotal moments that shape your careers and your lives. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. 
Okay, No Limits. Today we have with us an entrepreneur. She is the founder and CEO of Rockets of Awesome. It's a data-driven children's clothing brand. They offer personalized subscription boxes. You can literally say, my kid doesn't like buttons or only wear stripes and they will customize it and personalize it for you. They also have an e-commerce site that is direct to consumer. And the idea is to make kids shopping personal and fun. She created this business in 2016 and their first pop-up shop just opened in New York this year in 2019. Prior to that, she created and founded Cricket Circle, which was a resource and editorial engine for everything baby and toddler. And it ultimately inspired the idea for Rockets of Awesome. Rachel also helped build a brand that I'm sure you've heard about, Warby Parker. She created this and helped her husband, Neil Blumenthal, build it. And she's been transforming industries from the start. It's in her DNA. Welcome to No Limits, Rachel Blumenthal. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I'm really happy to have you with us. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what got you started as an entrepreneur, because your background, you went to Tufts, you studied economics and political science. That sounds like the kind, by the way, that's what I did too. Uh, Not at Tufts, but another place. It sounds like the kind of thing that gives you some options when you graduate. Is that how you were thinking? Well, my first entrepreneurial venture was when I was 10 years old. (laughs) I used to um, basically convince my little brother, who was seven, that he was going to dress up like a clown and make balloon animals at birthday parties. Um, So that's where it started. But How did you choose the price (laughs) to sell these balloon animals for, Rachel? No, we were charging moms to work at their parties. So (laughs) we were like, you know, I don't know how much she charged me. We were like, Did you actually go to birthday parties? Yes. How many birthday parties did you go to? Probably only four or five. But, you know, we were working the the birthday party circuit on Cape Cod. Lovely. And I hope you got a slice of cake along with that. Yeah, exactly. So this was your secret to being an entrepreneur. So, okay, so you started this entrepreneurial adventure at 10 years old. Was that honestly part of your thinking? Like, I love this so much. I would love to start a business someday. No, it it was not at all. I went to college and... Um, I knew that I wanted to do something in business, but I grew up on Cape Cod and my dad was a doctor and all of the professionals we were surrounded with were doctors and lawyers. And I really had absolutely no exposure to what careers were out in the world. And when I went to Tufts, I just wanted to learn. I wanted to do as many internships as possible. Um, Economics and political science were sort of the fallback because there wasn't a business major. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in economics, and I don't know if you felt this way, but I just felt like everyone was going into consulting and banking. And that's what I should do. That's what I did. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I got my first job offer at Morgan Stanley. And I basically pulled out a couple of months before I was supposed to start because I had this out of body sort of experience where I was, you know, I realized that I had no idea what this job was that I had even been accepted for. I really didn't understand it. It wasn't something I was passionate about. And I really wanted to put myself out there where I could learn and and learn something that I was really passionate about. And I didn't know what that was. Um, I certainly would never describe myself as entrepreneurial. I always felt like I was going to graduate from college. I was going to go work in a corporate organization, climb the ladder, go to business school. And, you know, someday I would be the president or CEO of that company. And my first job was at Yves Saint Laurent. And the way that I got that job is really kind of funny in that 
A friend of mine worked at Christian Dewar at the time, and she invited me to a sample sale. And on the invitation, she had also CC'd every single publicist in Manhattan on that invitation. Oops. Which is gold and her mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So I took all those email addresses, and I BCC'd them, and I sent them my resume. And I figured, I don't know, what, what the hell do I have to lose? I don't know anybody in this city. And people started calling me. And I remember calling my mom being like, Mom. People are actually calling me back. Like, <laughs> this worked, you know? And I couldn't believe it. Did but you ask, by the way, did you ask anybody before you did the BCC, do you think I should do this? I don't think so because I don't think I wanted anyone to say no because it was a ridiculous idea and really ballsy and presumptuous. And it's not like I knew anybody, you know? Um, no, I think I just did it. Okay. I can't remember. But I so you call your mom and tell your mom people are responding. Yeah. So I had interviews at Carolyn Herrera and Chanel and Todd's and Yves Saint Laurent. And, you know, I went in for my interview at YSL and the woman that interviewed me, she was like, well, she's like, you don't really have much experience, but um, you grew up in Boston and or you went to school in Boston and I'm from Boston and you seem like you're smart enough. So... I'm going to hire you. And it's in that moment where, you know, I was sitting in this room and I'm surrounded by, you know, couture gowns. And I just remember there was this rhinestone and velvet shoe from the runway on her desk. And I was just thinking, and by the way, her office was the size of like a very, very small closet. And I thought it was the most glamorous thing I'd ever seen in my life. But, you know, I think what I love about that story is that it's very representative about being opportunistic. And the importance of really sort of taking advantage of opportunities that are presented to you and you never know where they're going to take you. So you end up going to Yves Saint Laurent and were you based here in New York? I was. I was. Our first office was on Madison and I think 53rd Street. And it was the best job I could ever imagine. It was a very small team. There were four of us. Um, but I ultimately was responsible for all of the editorial placement for men's and women's ready to wear and accessories. Wow. And I worked with the celebrities on or the stylists on dressing celebrities. And it was magically glamorous and magically unglamorous in that, you know, I was you know, working till 11 p.m. every night. I was always on my phone, but I just, I loved it so much. And I made, you know, I built such great relationships. And, um, you know, what was interesting was that I was in this environment that was incredibly creative. My role itself wasn't particularly creative. And I, on the side, would go to the bead stores on 6th Avenue and um, I bought materials and decided to make a piece of jewelry. And I'm not a jeweler. I've never been trained as a jeweler. Um, I do happen to be good with my hands. I'm like, you know, an A plus in arts and crafts at summer camp. And um, I made a wear- ring and I was wearing it one day at work. And editors that I worked with from Lucky Magazine saw the ring and when you're in that editorial world, particularly back in the early 2000, um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And so they said, well, we want to feature you as an up and coming designer. And, you know, opportunity presented itself. So I said, OK, they did a photo shoot. They featured me in the magazine. They called for a credit check, which is when they say, you know, what is the name of the brand and the price and where are you sold? And I said, oh, I'm in a meeting. You know, I have to call you back. Because I had no brand name, I had no price, I had um, no retailer to purchase it. And I went to, um, I walked up and down Amsterdam and Columbus and Madison Avenue that weekend. And I basically begged somebody to take it on consignment. So I had a retailer. 
So um, this boutique on Columbus Avenue picked it up on consignment, and now I had a retailer, so I called them back and gave them that information. And about a month later, Daily Candy called. This was in 2003, so... Daily Candy was the only game in town. It was sort of the biggest, you know, what is hot and new and cool today, and you have to go buy it. And they said, we're going to feature you next week. What is your domain? And I said, oh, I'm in a meeting. I have to call you back. <laughs> you had a lot of meetings back then, Rachel. I had so many meetings. I, by the way, had never had a meeting. I'd never even been in a meeting in my life. Um, <laughs> but I didn't have a website. So I called a guy that I hadn't seen since I was in Hebrew school. And I said, I heard you make websites. <laughs> and again, 2003. His name was Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Only kidding. <laughs> and he threw up a landing page and a photo and an email address. And that was my website. And Daily Candy ran, rang. And I had an onslaught of buyers and editors and customers that wanted this brand that didn't exist. And I started doing trunk shows at Henry Bendel. And I'm still hand making every piece of jewelry. Um, Shopa picked me up as one of their first few jewelry designers very, very early on in their business. And it was that moment where I really had to choose, you know, was I going to take this opportunity where what I've learned over my career is that really great entrepreneurs learn how to mitigate risk along their journey. So before they jump off the bridge and go after their crazy idea, they've kind of like checked the boxes along the way of, you know, is there product market fit? Do people want what I'm building? And I felt as though, you know, I had customers, I had lots of editorial opportunities. There was really something here. And I was actually dating my husband at the time. So I was dating Neil and he is like, you know, the ultimate entrepreneur that believes that everything will work out. And, um, you know, you know, he was like selling jello shots out of his parents' apartment in high school and, you know, has, has always sort of, you know, not been afraid to take those risks. And he was like, you've got to do this. You've got to build this business. And I really wasn't sure. You know, I loved my job and I could see what the career path looked like. Um, but he really encouraged me. Because you were doing this all on the side. You were still working This was working a your like job. 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. side hustle. Um, yes, I was still working my job and I loved it. But um, I ultimately decided to leave YSL, set up shop, my living room, my coffee table. And I figured, you know, I'd go back in six months when it didn't work. And um, it worked. It was, you know, my jewelry line. It was called Rachel Lee. It was in about 500 retailers worldwide over the course of eight years. We Were you always business. the one making it? No, but I made, I handmade everything for the first year and a half because I didn't know where to find somebody to manufacture it for me. I really had no idea where to start. Um, eventually I found people and then factories and all those things, but I really taught myself everything along the way. And I had the opportunity to license the business about eight years ago. And I'd hit a point where I really didn't feel like I was growing and learning anymore. And I really wanted a new challenge. So I decided to license that business and kind of explore what was next. How did you license it? Where, what is your, do you still own the business today and license it out? So what happened was, is that, a buyer of mine said had introduced me to um, a group that owns a lot of licenses and does the licensing deals and jewelry brands for a number of really big celebrities. And, you know, they sort of explained, hey, they're looking for another brand and they're looking for somebody that has a really strong supply chain and a network of retailers. And, you know, we were in 
hundreds of stores across the world. We had an incredible supply chain. And I really felt like that was the right opportunity. And it was sort of a moment where I could transition it gracefully and set up my team for success, but also be able to sort of move on with my career. And ultimately, um, I ended up sort of terminating the license about a year in because um, it still required some of my time. And I just didn't feel like they were ever going to do anything meaningful with it that uh, worth the effort that it demanded. Mm-hmm. Plus, it had my personal name on it. Yeah. Um, the brand was Rachel Lee, which was my first and middle name, was the only thing I could come up with that day they called me at my desk. <laughs> um, so, you know, because of that, I decided to terminate it. And um, the brand does not exist anymore. I have bins of jewelry in my closet that my daughter now plays with instead. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you turned the page on that. How does the next cricket circle come to be? Yeah, so I turned the page on that. I had our son, Griffin. Warby Parker had just started getting going. And you basically went to business school. I, you, you I moved feel to like I did. Yeah, yes. so I moved to Philadelphia. Well, I was actually in New York three days a week. And I was in Philadelphia four days a week. Because when Neil first went to business school, um, I was still running the jewelry company. And um, this is actually a great story. Okay, so I was sitting in Philly one day. I was working from Philly and in our living room, and I had Oprah going on in the background. And um, James Taylor was her guest on the show. And James Taylor starts playing Fire and Rain, which I love. And out walks Oprah and Gail wearing my jewelry. And it was the just one of those moments where you get the chills and I just started hysterically crying. And yes, it's, it's monument, you know, it's a really big deal when you're a, you know, a jewelry designer and, or a clothing designer, any brand and, you know, celebrity that you have such deep respect for is, is using or wearing your product. But the backstory is that the night that Neil and I were talking and had a conversation where he convinced me to leave YSL and start my jewelry company, um, fire and rain by James Taylor was playing in the background and so when Gail and Oprah walked out to that song, I just, I was like, oh my God, the stars are aligning. This is crazy. Um, but to answer your question, yes, I was working from Philly, going back and forth. But it was really important to me that I, you know, Neil and I were newlyweds. We had just gotten married during preterm of business school. And it was really important to me that I was sort of on that journey with him and that we were on that journey together. And It was also at that point where I really felt like I needed to be challenged again. And so I tried to suck as much as possible out of his business school experience where I would go listen to, you know, different speakers or I played, you know, um, ice hockey with him and his, you know, his business school classmates. I would follow him and his co-founders to every single tech conference that they would go to. And that was a moment where I really felt like, wow, something different is happening here. There's something really interesting. And I want more of this. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what it was. And um, after licensing my jewelry company, I would basically sit at a desk every day and research and come up with really bad ideas. And I'm sure they would be good ideas for somebody, but they weren't ideas that I was really passionate about. And we had just had a child. And as I would talk about my really bad ideas, I would talk about the frustration and the challenge of 
having a new baby and not knowing what products to buy. There are hundreds of strollers that buy by baby and, you know, that sort of panic of how do you know which one to buy? And ultimately decided to launch a content platform, um, basically a cliff notes for what to buy when you have a baby. And it was three products in every category. And the idea was that we were going to test all the products, do the research, but tell you in a very practical and relatable way why one stroller over another based on your lifestyle and use a really simple algorithm to help sort of filter down the recommendations for you based on where you lived or where you traveled. You know, if you look at your friends, you probably all have the same three strollers and the same three car seats and the same three, you know, bibs and things like that, because it is so much based on where you live, where you travel, what your lifestyle is. And so if we collect that data and filter it down, we can make product recommendations to the customer and really build trust. You talked about the algorithm, and that's so important also to the Rockets of Awesome business, really having the data beat to back it up. How did you figure that part out initially? Because that's not your background. No. So with Cricket Circle, it was it was not it was barely an algorithm. I think to call it an algorithm would be far too generous. Um, <laughs> it was really more of sort of like a matching system um, because I didn't have a data scientist. I did have a CTO, but I didn't have a data scientist. So it was really more of a matching system there. Whereas with Rockets of Awesome, it's a much more sophisticated algorithm. How did you get to Rockets of Awesome from Cricket Circle? Hear more from Rachel Blumenthal after a word from our sponsor. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com because everybody needs a girlfriend. How did you get to Rockets of Awesome from Cricket Circle? Yeah, so I was building Cricket Circle and I was incredibly passionate about this idea of being able to simplify the lives of parents, really eliminate the stress and the anxiety and 
the time associated with trying to figure out what are all these products. You know, when I was pregnant, I received probably about 40 Excel spreadsheets from friends of (laughs) these are, you know, they were color coded and they had, you know, a whole sort of like key chart for how to read the spreadsheet. I would ask everybody for those spreadsheets, by the way, when I was pregnant, I was asking everyone if they had if they had one of those. And then eventually my life, like I just kind of I had so many of them, I, I didn't really pay any attention to any of them. Well, it's funny when I started, I thought people were screwing with me that they were just kept sending me these lists. And I was like, how is it possible that there are so many lists? How is it that anyone has time to do this level of research? And, um, you know, this idea of could you aggregate all this information and make it really easy? But I wanted to make it easier for customers and create an environment and create content that really spoke to this very critical time of a woman in a family's life and one where, um, you know, it was really hard to find very relatable, honest, direct answers. And I'm not somebody who wants to read the entire book. I want you to give me sort of like, give me the 10 bullets because I'm really busy and I'm, I want to, I want to read 10 books. So I want to read the 10 bullets from the 10 books versus the one book that I'm going to read. Um, and so I wanted to create this, this platform and, You know, I think what was so interesting about it was that the level of evangelism and trust and loyalty to this was like nothing I've ever seen before. The immediate response and connection. I mean, to this day, two people I met this week said, oh, my God, Cricket Circle. You know, this was, I don't know, it was probably four or five years ago at this point. The fact that they still remember it and it was something that stuck to them is, you know, it, I think it really had an impact. But what we learned through the Cricket Circle journey was that um, sort of two things. One was that there is a very short period or a lifetime in a customer's life where they are really desperate for that information. Yes. And you are eating up everything people are putting down and you and can't you get on. enough of it. Right. And then you have the baby and you build your confidence and probably – Six, nine, 12 months later, you're like, you know what? I got this. If it's the wrong sippy cup, they will still go to college. (laughs) Life will go on. Um, But when you're pregnant, when you're two months in, you know, the world is going to come to an end if you buy the wrong one. So what we recognized was that the lifetime was really short. What we also learned through the journey, a lot of the market dynamics had shifted through the period that we were building the business, the beta test, and then when we put it out into the world in that I never wanted to hold the inventory of the products that we were recommending. I always thought that I could monetize a business by selling the products we were recommending. And taking a cut of that. And taking a cut. I never wanted to hold the inventory because I didn't want people to think that it was driving or something. Exactly. Driving the recommendation. I also didn't want to compete with Amazon. So the idea was that we were either going to partner with a distributor. There used to be distributors who would have sort of all these products and you know, they would distribute it and sell it, you know, drop ship it for us. Or we would partner with a Bye Bye Baby or diapers.com or something like that and be sort of their content arm of, you know, of their selling arm. And the market dynamics shifted quite a bit over the period of testing or running Rock uh, Cricket Circle. You know, what we kept running up against was that there were just not very meaningful monetization opportunities that were going to enable us to build a business of the scale that, um, was really the vision and, mm-hmm. and what I was really excited about. And I had taken some venture capital by that point. And so I was responsible for other people's money. And it was really critical that I make sure that this was going to be something that was a meaningful return for our investors and also meaningful, you know, for 
my learning and my team's learning and development. And, you know, ultimately, as we started testing different monetization strategies, we were testing, okay, well, you know, if we have all this data about you, we know when your baby's going to eat solid foods and we could put the right products in your home for them to eat solid foods. Or we know when they're going to start crawling and, you know, the different types of products you need, things like that. We also started testing what about clothes? What about toys? What about all these different categories? What I kept hearing over and over again from our customer was that, again, you know, this pain point of the right bib, the right sippy cup, that was the ultimate frustration and moment of anxiety very early on in my baby's life. But now that my baby is, you know, six, nine, 12 months, What's the most frustrating is that my kids are outgrowing their clothes or outgrowing them with extreme frequency. The volume for which I have to replace is tremendous. And I spend way too much time finding cute stuff that isn't expensive. And that was the moment where we really saw this bigger opportunity. Um, it was something that I was personally experiencing with my kids as well. But it was a really scary, pivotal moment mm-hmm. Um, both as a leader as well as for the business because it really forced us to make a big move. So what did the investors say to you when you go to them and say, I know you were betting on us for this, but now we're going to pivot to this other thing? Oh, and by the way, it will in some ways compete with Amazon. You know, I would say in general, my investors were incredibly supportive Um, And I think that that is the benefit of early stage investors. Kirsten Green from Forerunner is um, a longtime investor and friend and advisor and mentor. And she was my first investor ever. And, you know, what she said to me was she said, I invest in people and I invest in the people that I want to be in business with. And if it's not the business that I invested in, then that's okay because I invested in you. And, that, you know, that was like one of those moments where you're like crying hysterically as she's saying that to you. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't want to let you down. Um, and you're like, are you sure you want you invested in me? You know, but that's that moment that, you know, definitely gave me a much more visibility to the early stage venture landscape. I don't think I ever really understood that that's how early stage investors think about businesses. But it also gave me such tremendous freedom um, and really you know, the power to be able to chart the course for the business that I felt was best for um, everybody involved, customers, employees, my investors, myself. Once you pivoted and said, "Okay, stake in the ground, we are now Rockets of Awesome. We're in the clothing business for children. How long was it between knowing that's what you wanted the business to be and the business actually looking that way? It was about... It was about 12 months. 12 months. And what was the biggest oh no moment in those 12 months or just beyond them once Rockets of Awesome gets off the ground? Oh, I think the first moment that was really difficult was telling my team because I had a tiny team. I think that I was so concerned with sort of like shielding them or protecting them, not wanting them to be scared or nervous, wanting them to think that, you know, their leader was taking care of it not wanting to lose them because I valued them so much that that was the first hurdle was telling them and making sure that, you know, I was able to maintain the trust and the credibility, but also that I could motivate them to come along for the ride. 
I think the second was when I, the first person that I hired for Rockets of Awesome was a apparel designer. You know, we were working out of, we were working out of Warby actually at the time. So Neil and the guys had so generously given us sort of a row of desks within their massive office. It's a nice perk. It was an amazing (laughs) perk and, you know, free office and free snacks. I remember the designer coming to me and saying, oh, so I'm going to need a bunch of, you know, foam boards for the inspiration for the collection. And, you know, as we start design, we'll start putting them up on the board. So I ordered her foam boards and they arrived and they were, you know, I don't know, 36 by 24. Like the kind of thing you use in your science fair. Yeah, exactly. Junior high. Exactly. And she was like, so I'm going to need much larger foam boards. I'm going to need you know, basically like eight feet by four feet. And I'm going to need, you know, 15 of them. And it was in that moment where I was like, oh my God, I really have, I really are so far from understanding how this process works. And it's funny because having a jewelry company before, knowing how the manufacturing process works, knowing how that side of design works, I think I had more confidence than maybe I should have. Um, And so that was sort of that moment of just, the steepest learning curve I could ever imagine and one that was scary and you know I second and third guessed myself along the way um, but always sort of had a very very strong perspective of what this brand was going to be and how it was going to serve customers and in every moment of self-doubt would try to convince myself that I should listen to my gut and follow my vision Great. So now you've raised in this most recent round, you just closed a Series C, I think for $19.5 million. What's the biggest challenge right now about fundraising? Oh, God. So it was being a woman. I was pregnant fundraising. So um, being a soon to be, well, I was a mom. Okay. I was a woman. I was a mom. I was a pregnant mom. So soon to be a mom of two. And I was the wife of someone who was building a successful business. And so the combination of those things, people would say to me things like, well, how much time do you spend on this? Suggesting that it was a hobby or, you know, well, well, how do you balance it all? Or, um, well, you know, what, what's your plan? And they would like, look at my stomach and, you know, all of these sort of questions to suggest that, you know, I wasn't committed to this. I wasn't taking it seriously. I wasn't going to be as successful as, as, you know, a guy could be. And that was really challenging. Um, the best was that it was really motivating. Like to me, that is like fire under my ass because I'm like, oh, you don't believe I can do this? Well, screw you. I'm going to show you, you know? And so for me, it was like the ultimate fire. But I think in that those moments when it would happen, I was a little bit deer in headlights because I was like, oh, this thing that everybody talks about, it's happening to me right now. And I want to make sure that the way I react in this moment, this pivotal moment of my career is going to be representative of something that I'm really proud of. And how did you react when people said those things to you in meetings? I would take a really long, awkward pause just to see how awkward I can make them feel. And then I would say something either to the effect of, well, what do you mean? And I really wanted them to rephrase the question and think about how stupid their question was and make them feel really uncomfortable. Or if they knew Neil, I would say, well, exactly the way Neil does, just very matter of factly and kind of shut it down. Um, Because, you know, what I wanted them to know was that 
this line of questioning is total BS. Um, it's so unprofessional. And this isn't sort of the world that I'm interested in playing in. And this isn't the type of leader that I am, nor somebody that I want to engage with. And just hoping in that moment that I could take the high road, but also make them feel a little smaller um, while making them feel a little awkward. <laughs> Definitely awkward. But I think that's a good idea for people just generally um, because you get approached with all different kinds of questions in your career. And I think it's a good idea to be quiet for a minute. Just let that simmer for a second. Exactly. Let them sit with that for a minute. That's wise. Did someone teach you that or did you just kind of instinctually think of that? It just sort of naturally happened. And then after I did it the first time and it worked really well, then that was sort of my MO after. How do you think about Amazon now? Because you go back to the beginning of your story and you you didn't want to be competing with Amazon and you didn't really want to own inventory. And here you are, you own inventory and Amazon, if you're in retail, Amazon is a factor. Whether or not it's a giant factor, it exists. Amazon's a huge factor. And I think that it would be naive to say that they don't matter um, because they absolutely do matter. I think that they affect everything from customer acquisition costs to, um, you know, your ability to grow. And, you know, we've always really grounded this business in a really, really strong brand. And brand to me is the greatest value that you can build for your business. It's why somebody chooses one mattress over another, one razor over another. You know, it's the reason that people really align their values and their interests with a certain company. So the brand was critically important to me and the belief that if we create a brand and our customers aligned with those values, then um, we will be able to build that trust and that loyalty and that longevity. Um, you know, it's funny. I go back and forth on Amazon. You know, sometimes I'm like, God, like, should we get in bed with the devil? And then I say, God, no, because, you know, that that opens up a whole other can of worms. And I think the answer is that I don't know the answer. I think that I'm always having conversations and exploring um, what different opportunities are. I I don't know. It's hard. You know, I think that customers you know, are really looking for magical customer experiences. And in some ways you could say that Amazon is far from that. In other ways you could say, no, the fact that they, you know, make it easy and they deliver it in two days, that's that's magical. So I think, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword and I don't have a great answer for it because I really am personally struggling. And I think internally we struggle on on what that is. And so today we really focus on, our channels and our direct, you know, relationship with our customer and how we can make that as special as possible and and make it so that um, they feel incredibly connected to the mission and the brand and build that loyalty so they tell their friends about it. You know, you talk about brand and it's something I know Neil, your husband and, and Warby Parker thought a lot about as well. And especially now, when it seems like if you check your Instagram feed, it feels like it's easier than ever, even though that's not realistic, but it feels like it's easier than ever to start a cool company. And I'm saying that in quotation marks. And it, it makes me wonder. That's, it is. That's it, a fact. <laughs> the, 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 but it makes me wonder as I look through my Instagram feed, how 
you maintain that equilibrium between being cool and interesting, but also longevity because there's so many new brands every day. You mentioned razors and you mentioned beds. Like these are now categories that have 50 entrants into them. And they, some of them do. A handful of them might have a cool brand that affiliates with a handful of people. But there's always going to be a lower priced individual that can enter the space. And it just feels like this total race, especially in the consumer space, to put things out there and to be the thing of the moment. How do you maintain that longevity but also stay cool? I really believe a brand is like a living human being. So like take like your baby, right? I I think of a brand like a baby where they, you know, every day, every week, every month, they are developing new characteristics and their personality is evolving. And by middle school and high school and, you know, when your child is an adult, they are an evolution of themselves. And I really believe that a brand is exactly the same where it's sort of, you know, Um, layers of an onion. And I think that it's critically important for all brands to always evolve. And so it's not just about having the right color palette or the logo or the packaging. It is, you know, what is that mission? What is that conversation that you're having with that customer? And how does that evolve and change over time, right? So, you know, you sound like someone who's open to that change. Um, I mean, you've, you've talked about the pivots in your own career, Is there something that you rely on to tell you this is the right moment for change? This is the time to do things differently. I we certainly are an incredibly data driven organization, and so we're always following the data. But I think that I I just find change really inspiring and motivating and energizing. And you're not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it at all. Clearly, and. I think that I always like to keep customers on their toes a little bit. And so I never want to train them on a new behavior, but I want to show them a fresher angle of what they're familiar with and do it in a way where they say, oh, that's smart or that was unexpected and that makes them smile. And that's how we think about evolving our brand. Is there anything you've tried with customers that didn't work and you learned from it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's no sort of, I wouldn't say there was something where it was sort of like where it was black and white of nobody liked it or there was a ne- there was a negative feedback to it. I would say that, you know, the, the black hole of Facebook and, you know, always testing your, you know, digital ads. Every single day we're testing, you know, a zillion ads and, you know, we're, we're following that data very, very mm. closely. And I think that that's a decent indication of, you know, if customers like it or not. It also can be pretty scientific in terms of the creative and the content and things like that. Something I've been hearing from a lot of startups recently is this idea that, like, customer acquisition costs are going way up and that it's a lot harder to reach people on Instagram and on Facebook because of those things I was talking about. What do you do in that world other than just being better, you know, having a cooler ad or something that's more grabby? I mean, I think the irony is that all these businesses 
you know, the framework that all these businesses are working in, we're all starting to look like traditional businesses again. Right. We're doing brick and mortar. Well, yeah, that's We're the doing thing. catalog. We're doing TV. And you know? data. It's like if you're not using data at this point, then you might as well just leave the building because every business needs data. Exactly. But I think what you said before is absolutely on point, which is that the bar is lower than ever for somebody to be able to build a direct consumer business. And you know what? I think that's amazing. It gives so many opportunities for entrepreneurs and for categories and and markets to evolve and innovate. But I think it's really overwhelming um, and confusing for the consumer. And Mm -hmm. there's a real necessity for brands that um, that have that foresight to be able to break through the noise for them. And so for us, we really believe that brick and mortar was a way to do it. It was a way to sort of wave our hand over here and say, hey, like, hey, pay attention to us. We, you know, we matter. And here we're going to create an environment where you can physically connect with our brand in a way that hopefully you can feel what we stand for so much more. Um, it is a reason that people are doing, you know, podcasts and TV and direct mail and out of home advertising, you know, nobody was doing those things four or five years ago. So there's been a lot, you know, a lot of evolution. Everyone is trying to figure out what are the other channels outside of Facebook and Instagram. And it's really challenging. They, they dominate the lion's share of the spend of, and, and the eyeballs. For a second, I was thinking like the return of the catalog. (laughs) Are we going to return? We did a catalog for back to school. And it was very successful. (laughs) Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought? What's been the biggest challenge for you along the way? I think, you know, I'm the type of entrepreneur that loves getting in the weeds. I love rolling up my sleeves, brainstorming, building, schlepping things. Like, I just, I love to get in there. And figuring out how my role is supposed to evolve as my team has grown has been, I'd say, the the ever sort of evolving challenge in that, you know, nobody tells you. And even if they do tell you, sometimes it feels like, you know, well, are you sure? You know, mm-hmm. and, and I've never wanted to be the type of leader that is a figurehead. Um, that's just not rewarding for me. It's not something that I'm passionate about. I just, I love building. I love being in the weeds with my team. I love touching a customer. And so um, this idea that, you know, now that I have executives on my team and I have leaders and that have far more experience in their areas of expertise than I do, um, really, you know, acknowledging that my job is to set the vision, is to provide the guardrails, to be clear on what the goals are and, and to partner to align on the strategies. But ultimately, I have to get out of the way. I have to enable them to do what they're best at. And my job is really to break down barriers to enable them to continue to do that. And it's taken me a long time not to not to do it as much as to acknowledge that that's okay. And that's not me copping out or not being a good leader. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? I think it was when somebody, a few people, thought that the name Rockets of Awesome was a terrible name. And they said, oh, my God, it's Rockets of Awesome? That's so long. And you're never going to get, you know, all of the social handles. And how are people (laughs) going to remember that? And, you know, it's just it's kind of weird. How did you come up with Rockets of Awesome? 
We did a brainstorming session with about 10 people on our team and thousands of post-it notes with lots of words on it. And, um, you know, I set the vision Rockets, for... awesome. Yeah, exactly. You just marry them together. Uh, I set the vision for, hey, I want this name to really represent what is so magical and confident about kids. I want this to be a confident name, but I don't want it to be arrogant. I want it to have a sense of humor to it. I want it to make you smile when you see it and read it and hear it. And it was really sort of um, a little bit of like a jigsaw puzzle of coming together and looking at different words that we felt um, could unite together and make a name. And ultimately we had about two or three names at the end. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, you felt like the weight was on your shoulders, the weight of the world. You know, if you picked the wrong one again, they weren't going to college, right? So it felt again like it was the hardest and most important decision I was ever going to make. But um, I really just went with my gut. I went with what I believed was um, representative of the spirit of of this brand and this mission. Did you second guess it for a second when people were saying, and I'm assuming these people were knowledgeable people in branding and things like that, telling you not to do it? I second guessed it before we made the decision. But once I make a decision, I never go back. So I'm very decisive in in that I'm confident in my decision. So once I made the decision, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid, and that is it. And that is the name. And if you're going to tell me it's a bad one, then you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel Blumenthal, thanks so much for joining us on No Limits. Thank you for having me. And finally, the final shout out of 2019 to the team who helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. Thank you, ABC Audio. And to you listeners... I look forward to seeing all of you in 2020.